Hey y'all, welcome back to the show. Man, you know who it is. It's your boy Jay Hennehan, and I'm back with another episode of How to Kill a Sacred Cow. Tonight on the podcast, we have James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, open source journalist par excellence. So, what open source journalism is, if you've never heard of that or of James either, which, if you have and you've been living under a rock, open source journalism is uh, citing all of your sources and encouraging people to go and check those sources on their own, to make up their own mind, and to actually participate in the uh, activity itself. So it's this great community that he's built over there at his site where everybody is cobbling together resources and helping each other to think and to grow and to be able to see behind the bullshit that is, you know, media today. Media always, for that matter. Uh, James is working on a history of, uh, of mass media, uh, he did with uh, Unregistered Podcast originally, and now he's working on his own version. And I encourage everybody to go and check out James's website and to become a subscriber. Um, I have been a subscriber for well over a decade, and that is a PayPal subscription I will never, ever, ever cancel. Because uh, seriously, this dude has has meant so much to my understanding of the world and uh, I really hope that everyone listening tonight will go down into the show description, uh, the show notes, and check out CorbettReport.com. Now, if anybody would like to help out the show, of course, you can go to HowToKillASacredCow.com. And what's beautiful is that I'm trying to build something very similar to James, uh, to James's model. And I am trying to make HowToKillASacredCow.com a one-stop shop for everything, so that if I ever get taken down off of all the platforms... Uh, you can find me on my website, and I'm, I'm trying to build up something very nice and very special. I'm trying to get up all the videos over there. Um, uh, eventually, I would like to make them native, get them all on there, uh, so that they're not dependent on any other platforms. And if anybody wants to check out the new store, I have two t-shirts and a mug. It's a beautiful thing. Go check that out. And while you're at it, I'm, I know you're already at the computer, or you got the phone in your hand. Go to CorbettReport.com. Now, without any further ado, James Corbin. All right, I want to welcome back to the show once again, James Corbin. James, how you doing tonight, man? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on. I know you have a super busy schedule, and I'm super honored to have you back on. Had you back on episode three um, all the way back in 2019, and a lot has changed since then. Um. So I kind of wanted to to talk a little bit about this change in the narrative going from this COVID narrative to the possible World War III narrative. And so what's your take on, do you think something like this was supposed to go, like maybe something like 2016, and they had to put it off till now? What's your feeling on the whole thing? I don't know about timelines because I'm not in the uh, back rooms planning all of this sort of stuff. But uh, it, as I said throughout the COVID crisis or so-called, um, was it felt like a rushed agenda, like that this wasn't some sort of perfectly planned out, meticulously plotted thing. It was more like a jumping on some sort of convenient bandwagon to get a number of agenda items pushed forward. And I don't know, either way, uh, it amounts to about the same thing, uh, a, a huge step down the field towards the abrogation of bodily autonomy, the uh, the pushing of various agendas towards ultimately the transhuman agenda, which I think is the end goal of this, which 
it's such a mind-bogglingly vast and ridiculous agenda that most people don't even know about it, let alone understand it. But um, so I think COVID carried it quite a ways down the field. Uh, I think obviously people had enough of that particular two weeks to flatten the curve after two years, they decided, well, let's have enough of that. But that obviously doesn't mean that that part of the agenda is over. In fact, I think that was just the opening salvo in an ongoing war. But uh, but now we have shifted into the war narrative. But actually, what I think, I think the baseline of what is actually happening geopolitically right now isn't geopolitical at all. Fundamentally, I think this is an economic slash monetary um, event that is happening right now. There is a changeover in the monetary paradigm that is happening that was already happening before any of this Ukraine stuff. I mean, the, the, we're already seeing the transition towards central bank digital currencies and clearly a new paradigm for monetary governance. And that is being worked out right now. So we're seeing, for example, the idea of the, uh, the gold-backed uh, Russian ruble some sort of new instrument emerging there. There's the petro yuan. There's Saudi Arabia talking about maybe um, maybe we'll start pricing some of our oil in yuan instead of in dollars. And there's some major moves that are happening monetarily, which I think this is about, which is really part and parcel of, of sort of the broader agenda of what's going on right now. And it's being called the Great Reset Agenda recently. That that branding stuck and people are talking about it, but I don't think, I think people get hung up on the branding and the World Economic Forum. As I've said many times and continue to say, I think Klaus Schwab is a carnival barker who is just trying to sell the World Economic Forum. We're the leaders of this into this grave, brave new world. But all he's selling, the Great Reset and everything is attended, attendant upon it is part of a very big old plan that has existed for a very long time before Klaus Schwab was even a twinkle in Henry Kissinger's eye. So I think, you know, we put too much emphasis on that to our own detriment to see that there's a much bigger game plan unfolding. And again, I don't know about timelines. 2030 seems like a very important year for a lot of different agendas. And a lot of them have been branded as 2030. But then again, we had Agenda 21 back in the day, which was all about getting, you know, the year 2000 is going to be a big transition point. Clearly, that wasn't, you know, the end goal of this agenda, as I believe was as some people hoped it would be. So it doesn't mean that everything is baked into the cake for 2030. But certainly, this is a decade of transformation that we are just beginning to see what this looks like. And as mind-boggling as that sounds, because we've already seen a lot. And so there was a couple of, maybe about a month ago, I remember seeing the, uh, what was it, the Canadian Parliament had called out Trudeau and some other people in the cabinet working for and with the World Economic Forum. And we've seen the backlash against Trudeau for his emergency powers that he was trying to put through in Canada. What are your thoughts on that? And um, do you have any any kind of an update as to what's been going on in Canada? Because the, uh, the, the news cycle down here is kind of sparse. Yeah. In fact, um, so the latest that I saw a few weeks ago now, I think uh, this is now old information, but the uh, the last I saw before it completely disappeared from the headlines under the under the rush of war information and propaganda was that uh, there the um, the agency or one of the agencies that was involved in handling this whole thing with the the freedom convoy and the emergency act and uh, delisting people from the banking system and all of this was that they were admitting that now there is a permanent mark on these people's financial records that will follow them around presumably forever um i i believe 
as far as I know, all of the bank accounts have been unfrozen at this point, but now there is apparently some sort of permanent mark on these people's records. So yay, this is the land of the free, home of the brave, or the true, the true north strong and free, right? Ha <laughs> ha. Again, it's absolutely mind boggling. And if that event had taken place in almost any other year up to this point would have been the story of the year. We would have been talking about it and analyzing it for months and months and would have been huge story. But as you say, it just completely swept off the front pages of even the independent media, let alone the mainstream media. So yeah, what is still taking place there? Uh, I mean, there are still ramifications from what took place there, but in terms of the daily news cycle, it's gone. Having said that, yes, there have been various people calling out Trudeau, the World Economic Forum, these sorts of things. Even in European Parliament, I've seen people talking about this issue and calling Trudeau a dictator. Um, what does that mean? I mean, ha- does that change anything politically on the ground in Canada? Not really. And even so, even then, I think, again, just like we put so much faith in someone like Schwab, uh, he's really the ruler, he's controlling everything. Again, I don't think Trudeau is really the one running running the show and calling all the shots and is the one who dictates the reality in Canada. Um, if you want to be conspiratorial about it, I always say look to the the second in command or the person sort of you know, sitting on the sideline. In Canada's case, it would be Deputy Prime Minister slash Finance Minister Christia Freeland, who clearly is very much connected into the agenda. Again, not only through the World Economic Forum, sitting on the Board of Trustees, but um, buddy buddy with George Soros. And in fact, it was just the other day. Uh, I can't remember what we were doing. Oh, I think uh, in my interview with Ian Davis, uh, I had mentioned. Uh, or Ian Davis had mentioned Soros uh, interview that he gave back in 2009, talking about the need to bring China into the new world order. And it's a clip I know very well. I've seen that interview before. I can I can close my eyes and picture it in my head. I've seen it so many times. I played it back in China in the new world order, my episode from uh, over a decade ago now or wherever, whenever that was. So I've, I know that clip. And um, as Brock was editing that video together, he sent me this message. Do you remember who it was that was, Sor- was interviewing Soros in that clip i'm like i don't remember no i i know it was a woman and i just i can't think of who it was and i was thinking you know christine lagarde no that doesn't make sense she wasn't interviewing zoris and he's like it was christia freeland and so i went back to the clip yes of course it was christia freeland back in 2009 when she wasn't so well known but now here she is literally the one announcing the freezing of the bank accounts and what have you so anyway there's all sorts of uh, connections into the greater agenda that happen in places like Canada that don't that come to the fore in events like this. That's the thing. These, of course, are all percolating all, all around the world in all sorts of different places. But when you see an event like this, suddenly you get to, it's like the light gets shone and suddenly you can see all the critters scurrying around, or around after an event like this. Yeah, and I, like I've said, I've said this a couple of times on a, a few past episodes, that it seems like all the old characters have been brought out from like, this is like the sequel of like a movie that got put off for a few years. I just recently watched, have you seen this? This is Oliver Stone's uh, Ukraine on Fire, 2016? Yes, I did. Yes. I saw it making the rounds again. I think I saw at least part of it at the time several years ago when it came out, but I, I definitely saw it when it was making the rounds again recently. One of the interesting things uh, that he pointed out in that movie is that all of these color revolutions, and he didn't know it at the time yet, I don't think Black Lives Matter had this symbol yet, but it's the the consistency of the symbols and the tactics of the groups that wield these symbols do you think this is trying to be pulled off domestically also? And do you think that this has some type of like connection with all these? 
in one sense, from a non-conspiratorial point of view, uh, you could just point to the fact that, okay, so there were groups that were working in countries uh, that that had great success with this type of movement, you know, a non, non-violent protest to tap, topple a dictatorial government. And it worked for Otpor and it worked in, in Ukraine originally in 2004 let alone in 2014, um, et cetera, et cetera. So the, it's been used and it became the color revolution tactic. And you could just say, well, it's, I mean, of course, activists are going to use it because it works, right? And uh, so they'll use the same sorts of tactics because they worked before, they'll work again. And there are playbooks that have been written. Um, I'm going to forget the name off the top of my head, but the uh, guy from the Albert Einstein Institute or whatever it was called, oh, I should know this, I'm sorry. But anyway, people can check my work on this before, for example, NGOs as Trojan horses. Um, I've talked about this concept before and how it's used. But um, of course, the question always, I mean, at the end of the day with these types of things, where's the money coming from? And that can usually be traced back to things like the National Endowment for Democracy, um, which is not an agency of the U.S. government, but is funded by the U.S. government. It's uh, the uh, founder admitted that it was basically what the CIA used to do. We can now do under our auspices, so the CIA doesn't have to worry about it. I mean, all of this is documented, and I've talked about it before. But then, interestingly, you get into the double bind, where, um, it, so then it almost becomes a game of, okay, so here's a, a freedom movement or an activist movement or something happening in a country, and then you find someone in that organization or someone associated with it who's been funded by the NED in the past, and in a way that invalidates that movement. So, I mean, Hong Kong, I mean, there are there are people associated with the U.S. State Department who have been involved in protests in Hong Kong and what have you. Therefore, the Hong Kong people should not that there is no genuine freedom movement there and people don't shouldn't don't have the right to protest against China because the U.S. State Department is funding them. And so then you get this weird thing where people's ability to protest for freedom or to to try to topple the government is contingent on whether or not they're being funded by the State Department, <laughs> the U.S. State Department, which, again, doesn't seem like a happy medium. So uh, there's, I mean, there. I think we need to sort of deepen the conversation of these types of things in, especially in the independent media, where it can be so easy to fall into the same old traps of the mainstream media, where you just create this sort of meta-narrative and then everything has to slot into place in that meta narrative, and anything that doesn't will just get shoehorned into that. So I am very, I'm very uh, cognizant of this at this point because I've seen it happen a number of times. That why do I, why do I have to choose whether or not I can or should support the freedom of people in Hong Kong based on you know whether the U.S. State Department has funded this or that person involved in this or that protest? It seems again like there's there's a dialectic at work that's trying to force us into a certain mode of thinking with these things. You know, you, you bring up it. This is such an excellent point because I always should, when I'm trying to explain some of this stuff to, to someone like that might not know much about it. The one thing I'm trying to express the whole time is like, it's very complicated, right? There's like, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a million different things going on, seemingly disparate, but are actually connected at least tangentially. And it's very much a human thing, right, to, to believe that, that, well, I mean, maybe it's education, but I, I think it is also human to think that it's, a, it's a, an either or, you know, it's you got to pick A or B. And that just because, so one of the examples I'll use is uh, kind of critical race theory, is that so, 
a lot of the criticisms of uh, culture from that lens are usually valid. Not all of them, of course, but there are definitely some valid points in there, just like Marx and communism. Valid criticisms of 1850 industrialized Germany. Um, but I always tell them it's the prescriptions. It's, it's the, the solutions from which people, whether it's organic, whether they come up with it themselves, or whether it's like an inception where a seed is planted elsewhere and, and they think they came up with it themselves, those are the things you have to worry about. The places where they want to take the agenda from A to B because they have put this in a box. They say, here's your two choices. You have to believe one of these two things. And so you see this at play right now with Putin and with, uh, and with the, the war in Ukraine. It's like either you're a Putin supporter or you're, you're, or you're uh, with Putin. It's, it's the craziest thing. It's like, no, everybody involved is wrong, but there's a long, complicated history here. It goes back a couple of decades but if you want to like get get right into the middle of the story, like we're trying to watch a movie, you got to start in two thousand four, and repeatedly over and over again, you know, like most people don't even know that Putin had given the West these lines and said, "Okay, these lines, if you cross, we're going to go into warning mode. If you cross, if you put NATO troops in Ukraine, I'm going to invade." And then again, we can broaden the scope because then. The question is, so do do people, do Ukrainian people in Ukraine, do they are they allowed to have the opinion that they are a separate nation from Russia and that they don't want to be part of Russia? Or do we say they can't have that opinion because Putin has set a line over Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, again, it's not so simple. And yes, certainly the West and NATO and others have been in there manipulating funding, doing things. So then that makes it more even much more of a complex situation that, yes, of course, there are bad people involved in every side of this. So again, why am I a Canadian in Japan? Why am I expected to stand with Ukraine hashtag or, or, you know, letter Z, Z as you might call it, you know, like that's my identity now. It's, it's, it's very interesting how this happens, but yes, you're right. It has to go down to the fundamental motivational ideology behind these things. So take a look, for example, at 9-11. 9-11, every power structure in the world celebrated on 9-11, paraded on the corpses of the people that died that day because it gave them carte blanche to do what they wanted to do. And everyone understands that with regards to Bush and the neocons. Everyone who isn't, I think, uh, too far gone to in the propaganda understands. Yes, of course. Again, regardless what you think did or didn't happen that day, the neocons certainly used it to further their war agenda. And hey, he, here's our ticket into Iraq. What does it have to do with Iraq? Who cares? We're going into Iraq. Um, and and so absolutely, that that was manna from heaven for them, whether they created that event or not. What again? Whatever you think about it, but. What about Russia? What about Putin? What about Putin calling up Bush that day? We, you know, we're on your side. You know, we're with you. We stand, you know, good, go get them. Why? Why was Putin all about this? I thought he was the great crusader for Russian nationalism. He's going to stand up to the global. No, it's because he wanted the excuse to crack down on the Chechens. This is this is his. He's got a war on terror. Suddenly this gets framed in this war on terror. We're with you. We're fighting the war on terror, too. And and then uh, then you start to look at the Chechen situation or, or some of the other uh, satellite breakaway republics or would-be breakaway republics from the Russian Federation that are 
clearly have these, this Muslim element that clearly, again, there is Western interference and, and funding and an arming of uh, Muslim uh, insurgents in these places like in Chechnya. Uh, so there's, again, there's another double game that's being played here and both sides pretend to be in a war on terror, but, uh, you know, NATO and the U.S. are funding terrorists in various countries like in Syria and others. So it gets into this, you know, again, there's another layer of, of complexity involved. But fundamentally, what is it about? Putin wants to control Russia and everything that he thinks is Russian, including Ukraine. And anyone who gets in his way, you know, too bad. I'm going to stop. I'm not going to stop. Um, and in the same way, the U.S. wants to control everything that the U.S. believes is in the U.S. sphere of influence, which over the past 75 years has basically been the planet Earth. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, Again, it's about control and it's about I get to control this piece of the, the puzzle. And anyone who protests that is clearly some foreign funded, you know, insurgency campaign and we have to stamp them out in the exact same way. What was the first thing that Trudeau and the liberals in Canada and in fact, the entire Canadian establishment, because there wasn't much opposition from the so-called opposition there. What did they do when they saw the Freedom Convoy? Um, well, at first, they just tried to dismiss it, oh, a fringe minority. But once they started to take it seriously, they said, oh, look, it's foreign funded. All these foreign people for funding this thing, it's a foreign insurgency because that's that's the go-to. We control this country. Everyone loves what we do. Anyone who doesn't is clearly either being financed, funded, or mind-controlled by some foreign influence operation. And that was the fundamental narrative set by the war on terror. Everyone who is against us is a terrorist, and we now have carte blanche to go after them. That's why Putin and everyone else, Bush and all of them, loved what happened on 9-11. And people aren't even looking at where this really matters, which is here at home, wherever home is for you, because it's not about these these wars. I mean, it is. It is about these wars out there. It is about that. But I'll tell you this much. I just took a plane to and from Puerto Rico. Just got back half hour ago. I'm still taking my shoes off in the airport. Unfriggin' believable. One, I, I, I forgot about it because you still got to wear a mask and all this stupid crap bullshit, whatever. And I was wearing flip-flops on the way home because I was just wearing them when I came out of the hotel. We went right to the... I still had to take my flip-flops off. Like, okay, all right, that that's one step too far. But um, this is where it matters. They're going to start cracking down at home using things that are going on out there. It's, it, it's just what they've always done. It's, it's the war on terror. It's Corona. Now it's Ukraine. Now it's, now oh, well, the economic hardships are because of the war over there. Yeah, but those things were already trending downward anyway, starting 1975. You know what I mean? Like, um, so... This is where they're trying to move it, right? More authoritarian control at home. I, I've been trying to tell people lately, like, you need to get your mind off of world leaders and all this stuff. You're not fighting this or, or that group or thing. You're fighting authoritarianism. Like, you just have to make sure that, like, the language that you're using is reflecting the problems that are that are materializing on the ground for you. And that's going to be more control over your everyday life, over your energy costs and your money, how you get to spend it, all these things. What are some of the things that you've had your eye on as maybe the most uh, problematic in terms of, uh, you know, uh, freedom and the fight against authoritarianism? Uh, I think it is exactly what you just pointed to, which is most people's inability to adequately conceptualize what the real fight is about, because most people want an authoritarian, just, you know, one that's doing what they want. You know, we want a good authoritarian, which was 
I think the, the diagnosis for what happened with the whole Trump phenomenon and why people deluded themselves into believing he was going to provide so much rainbows and sunshine and lollipops to the population because he's not, look, they're against him, so he must be good. And this is the childish thinking that unfortunately uh, predominates um, amongst a large section of the public. And so I think what, uh, what uh, you're also pointing to is that, okay, yes, I mean, there are things going on in the world and it, they are horrible and we should point them out and what have you. But our responsibility is surely first and foremost to what our, our, our neck of the woods, where we are living. If you have even some semblance of control over everything, anything, or at least ability to, to influence something, it would be at home rather than in some country halfway around the world that you've never been to and don't speak the language and don't know anyone there. What's why do people invest their identity in, you know, hashtag stand with Ukraine or whatever the passing thing of the moment is. No, no, no. Clearly our moral responsibility first and foremost is to uh, our leaders, quote unquote. And obviously I think that's a problematic term, but at any rate, you get the point. Um, so yes, be concerned about the authoritarianism at home and exactly what you point out, the entire apparatus of the war on terror as those crazy conspiracy theorists were warning for all these years, was precisely to create the domestic terror grid, which is now being erected and now openly being erected. Yes, now the DHS is now moving its primary focus, or at least one of its main focuses on domestic terrorism and the domestic terror threat. And they're issuing bulletins that, you know, these, these freedom convoys and what have you are the next big terror threat. And ooh, white nationalists are going to be the big terror threat. And we're funding the good white nationalists over in Ukraine, right? <laughs> you know, but again, you know how this works. Um, but unfortunately, then again, you get into the double bind that some who have who can see through a lot of that propaganda will then think, okay, well then our our bread is buttered on the side of this this other authoritarian who is fighting for his slice of the chessboard, and he's going to fight against the authoritarians who are ruling over us. So that's our saving grace. You know, it's the Xi Jinping's or the Putin's or whoever else of the world is going. We should be on their side because they're fighting against the bad guys here, right? Which Again, in the end, no matter which side wins, you're going to get an authoritarian. <laughs> and newsflash, authoritarianism, I mean, I guess some authoritarians could put the chains of slavery around your neck a little bit lighter. And, oh, it's, it's a little bit nicer. He doesn't whip us quite as hard. But that's not, I think, the fundamental solution to our problems, at least for, you know, for my perspective. So I think, again, until we get drilled down to the root of that problem, that it is the authoritarianism itself that is the problem, we cannot adequately address where to go from here. And so, to my mind, the biggest hurdle is convincing people that this is actually the issue. It's kind of strange from my perspective that you have to work so hard to convince people that they are, yes, you are suffering under the boot of an authoritarian jackbooted thug, um, and you should be against that. And Supporting some other authoritarian jackbooted thug in order to defeat this authoritarian jackbooted thug is not exactly a winning strategy, but that's that's really the main uphill battle as far as I see it. Although I would say that uh, these days it's a little bit easier to have that conversation with people. Um, it's easier than it's ever been, I would say at least. Um, I've had people approach me like, hey, Jay, you remember that thing you were talking about like a couple months ago? Like, you were, you know, you were kind of right about that. I said, yeah, just yeah, stick with me, kid. You'll be all right. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah, I agree. And I've obviously I've seen that in my own work in response to my work um, as well. But I, I think that's part of the what I'm talking about, the, the sort of people getting out of the MSM trap and the MSM propaganda and the establishment narrative that has been set and seeing through that to fall into the next layer of that trap, which is, OK, guys, so now what we have to do is stand with stand with Putin and the BRICS are going to save us and all of this uh, nonsense. Because, again, if you don't see the basic fundamental motivational ideological level of this, then you don't understand what the real trap is. A hundred percent. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I had a real life experience like that because I had I, I work with someone very closely and he started seeing some stuff with the uh, with the covid narrative, all that, you know, started seeing some of it fall apart. And he's a Republican. So like when Democrats come out and make an idiot out of themselves, he's you know quick to point it out, things like that. So I was like I had him. But when all this stuff started with Ukraine and he was a military guy his whole career. His first instinct was, let's go get him. We got to get, you know, he saw the tank rolling over the, 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 the civilian's car. And I said, hey, hold on. First of all, this is one of those things that you'll find out two weeks to three years from now that it was fake. One. Two, that guy should probably be dead. So I started, I pulled up my phone and I read the rest of the articles. And I said, yeah, this dude's still alive. And, and he was like, he drove tanks. And he's like, no, there is no way he should be alive. And then he was like, and you could kind of, it's, it's crazy to see it on someone's face to just that, that, that total screw. And, um, you know, now he's looking at the rest of the propaganda through that lens. Like he'll point it out to me on the computer. Hey, Jay, come check this thing out. Does this, this doesn't look right. Is that, he, it looks like his scope has a cap on. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's all fake. And, um, I recently, um, so I just read this article that was talking about satellite imagery from a, um, a company called Maxar. Have you ever heard of this company? It's not ringing a bell, no. Apparently, it is the um, all media organizations get their satellite footage that they use for um, for their newscasts, all that stuff. They're also f- part. They're, they're partnered with the um, either the Department of Homeland Security or, or just the Defense Department, of course. But that is where they they broke the Syrian chemical weapons satellite footage. They broke the. Ukrainian buildup, all that stuff. And the, it was actually a really good article. I'll have to send it to you. I think it was in the, the New Republic, possibly. And um, it was the, and then I started doing some more research on satellite footage, or generally where the media gets all of their, all of their photographs from AP, Reuters, uh, Getty Images. But Getty Images and one of the subsidiaries of Maxar work very closely together also. So now you got, you got the ground footage and the satellite footage. And this particular article, although it didn't go as far as I might have liked it to, it still did say that these, um, they might not specifically craft the story before they give it to the media, but they present it in such a way without context and let the media run with it. And they're able to distance themselves that way. It was a really great article, but what's your feeling on kind of the, um, the manipulation that can happen when there's only a couple of companies that are that are generating all of the footage, which I mean, I'm in video and photography, you're in video and photography. You know how easy it is to fake. Mm, I tell people yeah. all the time, like you should always just assume everything is fake until you can prove it. What yeah. do you think? on that? It's, it's actually, it's even deeper than that because it's not just outright fakery, um, which certainly does happen, but it's also, as you say, the context. And if you present certain photos or video in a certain context, it will present that narrative naturally to the person who is from that point of view of all I can see is what's what's being shown to me in, in these pixels. So I'm going to believe it was this. So um, there are many examples that we could point to of that, but let's pick one from recently. As I pointed out recently, I saw this 
bizarre article that was piecing together all of these like video after video after video after video that's being posted to social media, Telegram and Twitter and what have you right now in Ukraine, in Russia, elsewhere, um, that's showing these people that are being tied to posts and uh, stripped naked and flogged in Ukraine right now. Uh And there's many, many videos of them. And I guess they could all be fake, but seems like a lot of work from a lot of different sources to fake all of that. I think there is some sort of thing happening there, but what is the narrative of that? And different pieces, like it's posted by different people on different channels and different places, and they have different narratives. Oh, these people were caught stealing. um, And so now they're being, you know, uh, now it's like people's justice over there in Ukraine because government as normal is not functioning. So you know, the, the patrols and the civilian guards and whatever are just taking it in, justice into their own hands. And you're trying to steal food during this crisis. That's it. You know, we'll we'll do this to you. Other people are saying, oh, these were people that were trying to escape, you know, and, and trying to, to flee as refugees or something, but they weren't being allowed to. Or other people will say these were people that um, were, weren't adequate or refused to to fight against the Russians or something like that. And again, like, how do you know? I, I don't know. All I, I, I can see the video footage to the extent that that's real. I mean, that's, there's some sort of phenomenon happening, but what does it mean and who's doing it and why? Good question. And so anyone could come together and put this whole narrative around it and present these videos as proof of that narrative. And most people, most of the time would probably go along with it. If someone just presented this to you in a prepackaged narrative then you'd say, oh, okay, I know, I see something that's happening in the world now and I know why it's happening. But yes, I, I think that contextualization is really the key to all of this. And on the issue of consolidation of news, news information in a few sources, that's something that's particularly resonant with me right now because just last year I was doing a course on the history of mass media. And one of the key events in the development of the mass media as we've known it was um, the development of the of wire news services. Um, Reuters being one of the first, uh, Wolf was another one. There were a few that were in uh, Europe and then there was a new uh, one that developed in the US. Um, but these telegram wire services that suddenly you could have, obviously you have agents in various key cities, key capitals around Europe, and they, they could file a report and wire it out through the telegram um, to all parts of Europe. And so next morning you could be reading about it in the, you know, in, in the papers in London, you could be reading about what took place in Berlin yesterday. Amazing. But of course that means all of this information is getting centralized through these few wire services that then write these, this copy that gets widely disseminated. And maybe there's some reporting or research that goes on, but more often rip and read um, <clears throat> became the standard for a lot of television and radio. It's like, okay, here's the wire story. We might change a little bit of the wording. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll just read it as is. And people will take it as, okay, this is the news. So yes, the consolidation of control really started at that point. Um, and and what, from that point, it just plays out as we've seen it. That was what that was the establishment media paradigm that I think reached its zenith around the time of, say, 9-11. Um, it was the rise of the independent media over the past couple of decades and social media that has done something to disrupt that pattern of consolidation. And now, instead of having to rely, as we would have a couple of decades ago, having to rely for any news that we got out of Ukraine from those few wire services, now, at the very least, we do have access to social media. Whoever is posting that in whatever context, and can you trust it? And now we all have to be editors ourselves 
and think, okay, here's this report and this report and this report, and I can see this and I can get that, but what do I believe? It's getting a lot more complicated and a lot more difficult, isn't it? So um, in a way, of course, this is this is the spirit and the ethos that the Corbett Report was birthed in. You know, it's the, it's the online age and all of this information is coming out. But in another sense, it's the uncorking of the bottle. It's the opening of Pandora's box. Now uh, it's the pro- post-truth world, as it's increasingly called. And we are all being asked to try to make sense of this world and all of the billions of voices in it on essentially our own terms. Because you can't trust anything you don't physically know and experience and see for yourself can you but you have to trust some things i mean you can't you can't just live life 100 not trusting anything so where do you draw the lines and what do you what does it come down to which is again why i think it comes down to key ideology and motivation who is it that you are fundamentally what do you stand for and that will be at least one line in the sand around which you can start to construct an understanding of what's happening in the world but it's getting it's getting harder and harder. There's no one's going to hand you. Well, anyone who does hand you an explanation for the world on a silver platter is clearly trying to get you on board with a certain agenda or a certain team. And maybe that's the team you want to be on, but you have to know that at, at first in order to even participate in that conversation. Well, I think it it really uh, lifts the veil on more of of the the true nature of reality, anyway. Right? It was a it was an entirely false narrative all throughout history for there to have been one story, one reality. And I feel like for there's some stuff I read historically, at least where where historians before a certain period, they disagree on very many things. It's usually details, sometimes it's big stuff. Um, but the idea of living in a post-truth world, I don't really like because most of it was bullshit in the first place. And so I enjoy the post-truth world because you have more access to more voices you have more access like like if you really want to find out what happened at a certain event on the ground you want to get all of the security cameras that are pointing at that event in a 360 view that you can you want on the ground uh testimony because uh, eyewitness testimony is usually unreliable but if you can cobble enough together official reports narratives all the whole shebang and then have the um and then have a a couple of intelligent voices kind of putting it all together for you and you listen to those debates and things like that that i think is the true nature of reality and that is yeah. one of the biggest things like you just touched on that i have really gotten and benefited from watching your show listening to it all these years i don't even know how many years it's been it's been so many years now um and i also appreciate that you brought up uh the course that you did with Thaddeus Russell um History of mass media. Um, I will be making it available through um, my site in the coming months, I'll say. Uh, I'm working on sort of putting it together into a podcast form. And so it will be available um, for my regular viewers very soon. So people who are waiting for that, just keep waiting a little more. That's one of these long-term projects that (laughs) I've got a lot of them (laughs) that I really need to get working on, unfortunately. No, that's so awesome. I'm excited. I love the the subject. It's It's a great, it's something that should be a class in school education. That should just be a thing, being able to discern for yourself what is truth, what is not truth, by going through this process, by knowing the history of the media. And um, I was just, I, I, and this is just a a kind of a side note, 
I was so psyched when I saw you on Unregistered Podcast with Thaddeus Russell. That was like, I was so excited to see the two of you together, and um, it was a great meeting of the minds, and I was very happy to see that. And like I said, James, I'm going to let you go uh, because we're running up against the time, and I want to thank you a million times over for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure talking to you, my man. Let everybody know where they can find all your stuff. The best way to find my stuff is just through my website, CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. For some reason, I actually just discovered this the other day. For some reason, YouTube, which completely deleted and censored my first channel, my main channel, and then my backup channel about a year ago for, of course, COVID misinformation. Um, Just the other day, my backup channel reappeared. I could upload videos there again. And just, just like nothing ever happened. I didn't get an email or anything like no, no notification. It's just suddenly there again, <laughs> which was really bizarre. So I took the advantage of the opportunity to upload a video saying I am never, ever, ever, ever going to upload another video to YouTube ever, ever, ever again. So please go to CorbettReport.com, which is the one place you should be going. Um, having said that, I am posting to other places like Minds.com, BitChute, Archive.org, Odyssey. Uh, I host all of the MP3 and MP4 files myself on my own server so people can download them directly. I have an IPFS backup. I recently got on Substack, which is uh, because they say they are free, devoted to free speech and they're not going to be censoring anybody. Well, we'll, we'll find out if that's true. I'll, I'll test the waters, let people know how it goes. But I find it interesting. I've been posting the free version of my weekly uh, subscriber editorial every week. I posted, I've been posting it to minds.com before that I was posting it to steam it. So it's been out there for free for a long time, but for some reason, when I started the Substack and started posting them there, it's like suddenly they exist and people are reading them. It's like, yeah, they, I've been doing this for you know years and years and years, but for some reason, people are just discovering it. Great. Okay, good. It's a new, new way to get people um, reading my work. Um, so there's a lot of different places you can find my work, but I would say CorbettReport.com is the, the best place. And while you're there, not only bookmark the site itself or use the RSS feeds. Does anyone remember what RSS feeds are or how they work? It's a very convenient way of staying up to date that you don't need a social media middleman. But also I have an IPFS backup. So on the sidebar of my site, if you scroll down to the bottom, there's a Corbett Report on the IPFS banner there. If you click on that, you can get the backup of my site. It's a backup of everything up until I think February was the latest time it updated. I'm trying to get it updated again. But anyway, everything in the archives is there preserved. It's not like an interactive website. You can't sign in and leave comments or what have you. But all of the files are there on IPFS, which is interplanetary file system. It's a it's a peer-to-peer network idea that, um, again, there's no central point to censor. So if and when CorbettReport.com goes down, if you have that IPFS website um, bookmarked, you'll be able to still access the information. So it's out there. It will hopefully be out there until the end of human history or the big EMP pulse that <laughs> obliterates all of human society. But until then, <laughs> I hope to be out there and I hope people can find my work. Yeah, and don't forget to become a subscriber because support is necessary in this community. He does great work. Thank you very much for coming on, James. Thanks for having me.